warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing don't listen to this program? Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning, listeners. Um, I hope you're keeping warm. It's seven degrees outside. And in the studio we have, of course, Lalita Chalaya, who you normally have every um, fortnight. And today we're being joined by John Langer. Hello. Who <laughs> hey, morning, how John. are you? I am good. How are you? <coughs> Excuse me. I have a bit of a cough. That's, I know. Yeah, I'm I know. trying to fight. Yeah, Most yeah. people have some sort of a cough yeah. in this horrible weather. But, uh, yes, John normally does the breakfast program, and then he sort of um, backed off, and he also does... Um, Dirt Radio, which is... Dirt the, Radio. Yeah, that's the Friends of the Earth program. Uh, Give so it a plug. That's Mondays, right. Mondays, 10.30 to 11. There you go. He's doing his advert already. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop this man. <laughs> so, welcome aboard, John, and Thank it's you. a pleasure to have you um, Thanks as for part having of the me. program. Yeah, thanks. So, John will come once a month to um, add... Cheer to this program. <laughs> also, a little bit of uh, information and uh, yeah, and, and a little, your a little, talent. Bit, a little yeah. bit of solidarity. Yeah. Yes, and in fact, he organised an interview for today. Now, I'll go through the interviews in a minute. That um, Tian Chua is a um, current sitting parliamentarian in the seat of Batu in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He was visiting Malaysia recently, and I um, had the opportunity to interview him, and that'll run. Uh, as a pre-record uh, first up, and then we'll follow that up with, um, now, this is a difficult yeah. name. Pardon me for, no, no, this if th- I'm mispronouncing, I think it's a Swedish name or something. I, it's I think, he, Hor- I, no, Hor- actually he's from Brazil, and uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Olympics. Hey, That's folks, right. guess from what's from a different on? angle. Exactly. It's opening ceremony is happening in, in any minute now, I think. Exactly. His name is George Hor- or Jorge uh, Nish- Nishnik. If I'm uh, uh, pardon me for the bad pronunciation. Um, and following that, we're going to have, of course, our regular satire contributor, uh, Kevin Healy, and he does the front page criticizing the press and so on. Um, and Humphrey McQueen follows um, towards the end, and he's our uh, freelance um, political commentator, really, and he's very well known in the left. And um, he has a regular segment with us once a month discussing the economics, and he's very much a master's economic, um, econo- economist. So let's start with, oh, I've just gone out of this. Yeah, list. well, we'll yeah, we're going to go with, uh, with your, your interview, yes? Yes, yes, I will, I'll, I'll play the interview with Tien Chua, and... I hope it's loud enough. This is an interview with Tian Chua, who is currently the Member of Parliament for the Batu constituency in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He is Vice President of Party Keadilan Rayat, an opposition party in the Parliament of Malaysia, which is also known as the Justice Party. 
Welcome to, to Australia, Tian, and I suppose it's a welcome back. And thank you for being available to 3CR for this interview. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure that uh, I get the opportunity to come back and after such a long time. Um, yeah, this is a bit like a, a warm homecoming for me. <laughs> yes. I'm glad that I have a chance to speak to the Australian audience. Um, I was, well, I have been... Uh, been active in the the pro democracy movement in Malaysia since I returned. Um, I was elected as a member of parliament in 2008. Uh, since then, this is my second term as a member of parliament in a um, constituency in the capital city of Kuala Lumpur. Um, as you probably know, Malaysia is uh, undergoing a very politically challenging time where we are, um, there's been so much exposure of our Prime Minister, Mr. Najib Razak, um, involving in various financial scandal that amount to billions of dollars. And that's international scandals, aren't they? Yes, I think um, probably all over the world heard about it, especially um, only last week when the Department of Justice of the United States named uh, and specified the officials that involved in uh, um, what is it called, in the whole scandal and uh, uncover billions of dollars have been stolen from Malaysian people. Yes, and that's, that, I guess, is, is a scandal, but... Let's move on to the political situation in terms of the con constant domination of Baritan National from the time of independence in 1957. No opposition has been able to claim its rightful number of seats in Parliament. Like I, I, I know in 1955, when the, I think it was the second round of elections took place, even though the opposition uh, won 20% of the votes, they only had 1% of the parliamentary seats. And that pattern has continued consistently. And I guess that history still prevails. And the opposition is really having enormous challenges in trying to make inroads. Yes, true. Um, well, uh, effectively, uh, Malaysia is still a country that dominated by one ruling party since independence in 1957, um, we have not seen a change of government um, or the subsequence of the prime minister uh, and majority of the chief ministers come from the ruling Barisan National parties, which is a coalition of various ethnic uh, political parties implementing a um, and ethnic-centric uh, policies. And we have also witnessed um, continuously centralizations of power in the hands of the Prime Ministers. And, um, and in the recent years, we also witnessed uh, the Prime Minister has been very intolerant of um, any form of critiques, especially those that has uh, take out uh, or courageous enough to expose the Prime Minister's uh, own corruption uh, cases. Um, well, I myself is uh, facing uh, 
several um, court cases because um, among them, uh, one of which is um, uh, a charge for uh, sedition just because uh, I and my colleague, um, fellow member of parliament as well as uh, NGO activists, we were vocal in criticizing the abuses of power of the government. Um, this is the current, um, what is it called, repressive atmosphere that we are living in in, in, uh, in Malaysia, um, being those people on the side of the opposition are still having a very tough time trying to um, maintain our our dynamic of um, making sure that Malaysian uh, political balance that not to be totally monopolized by the ruling party. In the, in the 1970s, Dr. Mahathir, who was then Prime Minister, introduced a positive discrimination policy which favoured the what they call Bumi Putras or the Malays, uh, and that also has a religious um, attachment to it. But the fact is, since I think 1980, the votes for Barisan National, the ruling party, has gradually been decreasing. Yes. And the, the opposition has been growing among all ethnic groups. So... Perhaps, um, correct me if I'm wrong, we are going past that ethnic card or race card the, the government has been able to play or Barisan National has been able to play since the 70s to gain up an upper hand. But then now you have corruption as well um, as a huge component of the domination of uh, uh, Malaysian politics. So in terms of tackling all this, I believe you are setting up a, a new party or a new group because Pakatan Rayat, which was the coalition of yeah. opposition, basically fell apart, I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. So now you're looking for new directions, I believe. I wonder if you could explain what yeah. this new grouping is or, and is it going to be a political party? Yeah, okay. Let me, let me go, go back a little bit of what you said just now. Uh, the, the ethnic centric um, uh, system was in fact introduced by the, the father of uh, the current Prime Minister, uh, Najib Razak, in the 70s introduced that, and it continued up to Mahadev and continued up to today. So you can see a long sequence of uh, continuous strengthening of um, a very polarized society. Mm. And, um, and that also gives um, a very um, Malaysian uh, political, um, what is it called, uh, climate, a very strong undertone of um, the race and religious uh, this uh, narrative. Um, And we we are facing this and and it it has a very unhealthy effect on the overall development of the democracy in the country. It is to tackle all this, uh, we require very strong commitment from those people who are not with the ruling parties, uh, namely the opposition as well as uh, various social movements, to come together to um, to at least break such um, this sectarian and fragmented fragmented political uh, communities. Um, we have made several attempts in the past, 
whenever opposition party come together, uh, we gain certain momentum. We raise our people's hope for change. Um, unfortunately, last year, over certain legislation, um, the Pakatan Rakyat, which have, uh, which is, means the People's Alliance, which has um, contested twice in the election and gained strong support from the public, um, has um, more or less uh, defunct and because of various parties walk their own, go their own way. Ironically, um, when Mahadis and some of the UMNO leaders, including the Deputy Prime Minister uh, Muhyiddin Yassin, were sacked or removed from the ruling parties, um, they intend to form uh, political parties in the opposition to challenge the current uh, Najib-led uh, uh, ruling party. And um, discussion is underway for this newly formed, uh, the no, not newly formed, uh, about to be formed political parties with all the existing parties. There is high hope that um, we will all come back together to agree on a certain common uh, platforms and to build, rebuild an opposition pact to challenge a government in the coming general election. So this is going to be another coalition of groups, or are you yes, get, it getting it is? It's not going to be just an individual-based group. Yeah, it will be a coalition of various political forces. Uh, certainly, there will be participation from uh, prominent political individuals as well as leaders or opposition uh, leaders of the civil society etc but it will is uh, eventually uh, be an electoral electoral pact where um, the coalitions will nominate candidates to challenge the ruling candidates for the ruling from the ruling parties so you're going to have a coalition with no race or religious delineation I think the key issues is that we want to uh, create a forum or, or probably a platform, a political platform that be inclusive of various uh, orientations of ideologies and more importantly um, representative of various ethnic groups and religious denominations to be under one roof so that we can develop national consensus that uh, to overcome the uh, racial undertones and the uh, religious hegemony of the, the the ruling parties. And as we see now, Najib is uh, uh, embedded with all the scandals. Increasingly, he is playing out uh, religious and ethnic uh, sentiment in order to divert attention um, from the public, from away from his uh, corruption scandal. Mm. So he, his policy is a continuation of the past history of Malaysia, where there is an ongoing division of the people, so yeah. that attention can be diverted from their own crimes, basically. That's isn't right, it? and this is the unfortunate uh, consequence 
of uh, divide and rules politics. That's right, very colonial, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, he inherited from from the colonial uh, powers, and perhaps, uh, in fact, even perfected un- under the modern uh, nation building. Mm. I'm wondering if you could give us a, a little bit of a, a flavour of what this new coalition is going to, what sort of policies will you adopt? Um, is there a, um, a, a proposed number of views that you are recruiting people to? Yeah, um, well, the coalition at this stage uh, will be still quite loose. Um, I think the focus, there will be several focus. I think the uh, the key issues is as we talked about just now, to overcome the divide and rules and to enable Malaysians of various ethnic background, various religious background, could come together and uh, to work with each other and to reduce suspicions and um, hostilities against each community. Uh, that will be the key, one of the key tasks of the our, the political movement, because no uh, movement will be successful if um, the nations is continue to be divided. Uh, the policy platforms will be very much oriented towards solving the uh, livelihoods problems um, facing by the ordinary people, especially the working people and those people who are um, who are low incomes, and um, because of the years of decades of um, very authoritarian um, rules, the bureaucracy become very corrupted, and it's also def- um, certainly we can understand how uh, wealth and resources has been uh, directed to a small groups of people, a vast majority of Malaysian um, citizens have no opportunity to em- enjoy our rich national resources that uh, Malaysia has generated over the years. And this, uh, a, a, our key policy platform will be try to redistribute this to empower the people so that uh, jobs, um, as well as um, what's that called economic income dis- distributions can trigger down to help them. Um, it is an enormous challenge. I think it's the first step to start will be to create transparency in the administrations. Uh, to handle corruption, it might take um, a lot more efforts. Yet um, we start with opening out and allowing greater transparency through press freedom, freedoms of flow of information, to allow liberty for people to criticize and scrutinize uh, the um, administrations. That will help to reduce corruption. With the reduction of corruption, you will come with a more efficient um generations of income for the government and hopefully with this we will have been sufficient to assist those needy and we have 
made a very strong commitment that to remove uh, ethnic-based type of economic policies into distribution made um, based on need. We do not think that we will we are we will not remove some of these um, positive discriminations affirmative action policy, but we will change the affirmative actions to be oriented to those people who are in economic needs rather than based on their race or their uh, ethnicities. So I think this this to many countries sounds very natural, uh, in fact even taken for granted, but uh, Unfortunately, in Malaysia, it sounds revolutionary. <laughs> yes, it, it does. And you, that is a major task, that is to shift the uh, pr- privileges enjoyed by one ethnic group and then to redistribute wealth more evenly, as you say, based on needs, is a massive task. But the question I have for you in what you've just said is that the, the Malaysian economy has shifted quite a bit from a rubber-based economy, tin-based economy, to a palm oil-based economy, and into petronas a petrol based economy in the recent past now what sort of economic innovations will you be looking at to support your your platform i think the uh, the recent um, crisis in the oil producing countries uh, hit malaysia um, severely yes. because we used to be uh, very dependent on oil revenue um, it's probably at some stage, only uh, a decade and a half ago, we almost half of our uh, government revenue uh, were collected from uh, petrol-related uh, economic activities. And today, we hardly contribute um, more than 20%. Um, there is a big gap for us to catch up. Um, the key issues for us is to... First of all, we must be very vigilant and rigorous in reducing wastages because um, the non-transparent nature of the government uh, breeds corruption Mm. and a lot of uh, contracts have been inflated and uh, non-delivering of the the products. So that is the, the immediate task that we have to stop the leakages. Uh, and um, secondly, Malaysians should consider ourselves very lucky. We are in a, a very strategic, uh, what's it called, geopolitical um, position where we are in the middle of, uh, at the crossroads of various big economies between China and India, between the West and the East, between Australia and the Asian continent, uh, Malaysia has to reorient itself from uh, what we call a natural resource base uh, or natural resources production country into developing a strong human resources to allow us to be able to play an important role in trade and industries. Um, in those uh, the, the developing um, economy, um, this 
might sound very easy uh, in policies, but it requires the government to implement reforms not only in the administrations of economy, but also in our education system. Um, again, the education system um, has um, been called suffering because of the abuses of power as well as the discriminatory policies. And as a result, Malaysia is losing out a lot of human resources. Um, and I think Australia... Um, has been one of the beneficiaries for many of Malaysian professional class who feel that they do not get a place to contribute and do not have good opportunity to uh, to participate in the economic construction of the nation. Uh, eventually, they slowly move out of Malaysia, and this is a loss. And we have to reorient our economy to retain as well as to develop human resources. Yes, there's been a huge brain drain. I know in Melbourne alone there are you know, tens yes. of thousands of Malaysians uh, yeah. live in Melbourne. Now one question I have which is crucial um, to any uh, nation development I guess is freedom of association. I know trade unions suffer hugely in um, Malaysia like in many other countries yeah. and this is well known for well, particularly the, the Asian region is well known for yellow unions. So what would your attitude be towards healthy, true worker representative um, trade unions in Malaysia in your future plans? The trade union has been uh, suffering um, reductions of memberships, um, not only because of the industrial uh, or economic restructuring. I mean, of course, Malaysia uh, also, uh, also following the trend of many of the developing countries that. Uh, we are losing out a lot of manufacturing um, sectors. Um, the, this has a, a very negative impact on, to, on the worker organizing. Um, at the same time, because of the very strong, very repressive trade unions control law, that making trade unions organizing is extremely difficult. The unionization rates for a country like ours, where... 80% of the workforce are engaged in either service or uh, industrial sectors. Um, we only have about 7% of the unionized, unionized uh, workers, and only half of them probably has uh, is covered by collective agreement. Uh, this is this has um, to change, and um, unfortunately, we also face. Um, a situation of influx of uh, of migrant workers. As soon as uh, the workers trying to organise, we will be replaced by uh, migrant workers who always been intimidated to uh, to forego their rights, and they are unable to exercise uh, what has been guaranteed in the law. So this. These are things that uh, we must um, we must look into. Um, my party's um, what's it called the the Malaysian Trade Union Congress uh, acting president now is from the People's Justice Party, my party. Uh, we consider worker organising is a very 
uh, important parts of our political work. Um, and this also eventually, um, the reforms of trade unions law in order to allow um, uh, what's it called, more legitimate trade unions to be organized by workers, the law reforms must come and it will be part of our manifesto. Thank you very much um, for being available to Solidarity Breakfast and 3CRTN. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you very much. Bye. Nice talking to you. And that was Tian Shua, who is the current parliamentarian for the electorate of Batu in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and you're with John Langer and Lalita Chalaya today. Now, um, before we go on to the next item, I'll just play a couple of station IDs. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. It's 8 o'clock on the 6th of August. Now, Lalitha, Lalitha, get ready for yes. what's coming. Yes. Keep the 2016 Olympics. Yes, yes. It's, <laughs> it's on its way. That overblown gargantuan so-called sporting event is happening in Rio over the next two weeks. George Kanishik is a senior lecturer in the School of Education and a researcher at the Institute of Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney, and he's been casting a critical eye over the whole Olympic phenomenon. Good morning, George. Good morning. How are you? Thanks very much for your time. I wanted to go back to something that you wrote last December. Now, that might seem like an age ago, but uh, yeah. you wrote something that uh, about something that I'd really never heard of. It's called the Ten Commandments of the 2016 Rio Olympics. Can you tell us a little bit about these Ten Commandments? Well, on that time, there was another president in Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, who is now facing it. She is temporarily away of the, her office and facing an impeachment process, which looks like more a, a soft coup d'etat. But on that time, they were really engaged with the Olympics and to make it a very clear end with a very important social legacy uh, event. So that the that was what was about the, the Ten Commandments. Was something like well, something that is unachievable because the Olympics are dominated for all these corporate transnational forces, which kind of block any 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 social and educational progress. So these. The Ten Commandments and the legacy are more a fantasy than a reality. And what what were what were some of the commandments that they? Uh, I'm just having a picture in my own mind of uh, perhaps Moses walking down the the uh, <laughs> that great mountain in Rio de Janeiro with his Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's something that they they planned. But it's, 
as I said, is just unachievable because the, the big the big forces they don't they don't allow uh, the social progress go ahead in, in real like leave a legacy for the entire population of the city. This was the umbrella uh, that all the Olympics should be. But in fact, the legacy is, the, is just for the wealthy party of the city. It's like the, the most part of the, like the Olympic Village and the subway and all the, the reforms and redesigns of the city are in the wealthy part, one of the wealthiest parts of the city, which is Barra da Tijuca. It's like in Sydney, you, you're doing more good things for Bondi, which is already a very wealthy part, mm. instead of, instead of uh, improving parts like Blacktown or Western Sydney, where there are much more needed of public transport and public, and public services. The other thing you wrote about it, and also I found very interesting in that article, is what you called the uh, the Rio State Government's pacification of the favelas. Can you talk about a little bit about this? Well, the, the pacification of the favelas is a program that is ongoing since Rio was announced as, as host of these Olympics. And it's, it's um, at the end of the day, it's a militarization of the favelas because the military police goes there and keeps taking off the, the favela citizens the right, the right. It was meant to be followed like they would be, they would be taking off the, the drug gangs, they would, they would be replacing the drugs war, first by the police and secondly by public services like education and health services, but these services are yet to come. Yes. And at the moment, the favelas are under military law, martial law, because of the Olympics. So not only the military police, but the army. The army is there, and it's very, very tough for the citizens, for the favela citizens to leave. The... Um the interesting thing, I, I guess, that I'm I'm getting out of this, and these are the things that, that sort of make me very disturbed about, it, is is the, in fact the what I would describe as the militarization of these kinds of mega events, and uh, the uh, I guess you could call I mean using big terms here the securitization of of Rio, um, where they've virtually had to raise a, an army of of eighty five thousand people to um, basically patrol the streets and keep keep the peace. Yeah, moreover, what I think is happening with this militarization first is the criminalization of any social movement and any political protest. I was just talking to someone in Brazil and they said, well, the, the opening ceremony, as everywhere people are protesting against the interim president, they are saying Fora Temer, which means Temer go away. Temer is the interim president who is taking this coup d'état, who is, who is leading this coup d'état against the elected president Dilma. And I was just talking to them saying, well, they have ordered that anyone who says Temer go away in the, in the opening ceremony to be thrown in jail. I think there will no there will be no space in any jail because everybody's saying that. 
This this is this is in in the actual ceremony in the stadium. Is that right? Or yes, yes, in the stadium, in the stadium, where there are many plans to say that everybody will be saying Tema go away because everybody is saying this anywhere, and of course the the, the main broadcaster who are involved in the coup d'état as well, they just don't show these images, but it's anywhere in social media. Even yesterday, there was the first, the first matches of the football, the Olympic football competition, and there were people with jerseys and banners saying, "Temer, go away!" And the police approached them, asked them to leave or just to, to, to throw their their banners. So it's a very interesting situation. So all this criminalization, and I think the budget, the budget for security is just. Huge is the they they purchase all sorts of security equipment equipment all under of course the fear of terrorism but behind the terrorist brand it's the uh, criminalization criminalizing all these social movements the organized one and the spontaneous one. George uh, Lalitha would like to ask you a question. Sure. Hi, George. Um, <clears throat> I just want to have a look at another aspect of these games that's always infuriated me and I have always disengaged with it, mainly because here you have what they call an international uh, competition, but they don't look at the fact that third world countries don't have the resources to spare to train athletes to then go and compete against first world nations who pour millions to training their athletes. And it, it's such a farce. The, the comparison is non-existent, um, and yet there's this this pumped-up, um, you know, excitement about the very rich nations and very rich peoples having fun at the expense of poor people locally and internationally. What I mean, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's the, the pure truth. Unfortunately, that sort of is about uh, elite sport. I mean, people love it. It's Heaps of propaganda and it's beautiful, but at the end of the day, uh, that's that's the point. I mean, the Olympic Committee, the Olympic the organizers are are distributing half a million of condoms in the Olympic Village. As we know, everywhere where there are uh, young people, musical festivals, dance festivals, they they they'll have sex, and that's fine with me, no problems. But I don't know why we have to pay for it. That's my only my mm. only question. So that's a, it's a big party, which public resources are involved. And not only public resources are involved, but thousands of people, like in Rio, were dislocated, mm. uh, so the party can go on. And of course, it's a huge tragedy against human rights, and also it's. It's a paradox because the Olympic Charter always talks talks about, and one of of the its fundamentals of the Olympic Charter is about human dignity. But at the end of the day, they don't mm. support and they are against human dignity because they they cut all these human rights. George, I, I, I want to go back to the. Uh Right at the beginning of our interview, and we're talking about an article you wrote in the. Uh, we'll put it on our website and in our Facebook page. Uh, 
the article that you wrote in the conversation, you were talking about the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, as you wrote about it, has to do with, as you've said, the whole city legacy, meaning that the, uh, I presume that the, the city of Rio de Janeiro is, is ultimately going to have some kind of a legacy. The piece you wrote was back in December. It's about eight months later. What's your thinking about the legacy now that's going to be left on the, in, in relation to the games and, and what's been going on? Very controversial. We cannot, legacies are much more than just the economic part. There is a cultural legacy, a social legacy, a historical legacy. So this will be an ongoing investigation. So there are cultural and historical legacies that we cannot deny. But for for the forthcoming days and months and years will be very tough for the population because just before the games, maybe a month or three weeks uh, prior to the games, the state government declared bankruptcy. They said they were bankrupted; they couldn't pay anything for the for the games. So, because of this declaration, uh, emergency state. They could borrow more money from the federal government because of the, the, the laws. So they are not paying for essential public services, mm. hospitals. Mm. They are postponing public employees' wages. So it will be very, very tough to face. They are already facing a huge economic crisis, and this will be ongoing until something happens in terms of payments. But it will be very hard. George, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us early on this Saturday morning, and uh, good watching of the Olympics. <laughs> okay, for you too, my pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. And we've been talking there with George uh, Kanizek, and uh, he is a senior lecturer in the School of Education and researcher at the Institute of Culture and Society in Western Sydney, in us, in um, yeah, in the University of Western Sydney, and uh, talking about the upcoming Olympics, we've got a a marathon of watching and listening and reading about the Olympic sigh, and uh, we are Solidarity Breakfast. Okay, uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with John Langer and Lalita Chalaya. I thought we'd go on to some um, announcements before I get on to our regular contributor to Satire and Front Page, Kevin Healy. So there are a couple of um, interesting events coming up. On the 14th of August, no, no, sorry, um, the 17th of August, we have a, a tactical rape in war and conflict event. The use of rape as a deliberate tactic of war is a serious human rights issue that needs to be addressed and a book has been released by Brenda Fitzpatrick, and uh, she analyzes this act of war against civilians and international progress away from tacit acceptance towards active rejection. It's um, at 6.30 p.m. on the 70th of August, Readings Bookstore, 309 Ligon Street, Carlton. On the 18th of August, we had, there's a short film, Women Who Are who were never there. It's a story about a determined group of women who made the first attempt to get work at the male-dominated Port Campbell of Steelworks in 1973. 
and their struggle against this massive giant. It's an inspiring story of women struggling for equality. It's being shown on the 18th of August at the Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street. Um, it's the Austra- it's Carlton, that's right, it's in Carlton. Uh, $20 solidarity, 10 regular, and $5 concession. It'll be in a new council's chamber. So it's being organized by the Jobs for Women uh, Producers Group. So that's 18th of August. Uh, and quickly, a couple others. One is Songlines Across the Sea, hosted by the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance and RISE. This week in Melbourne, um, it, Amanda Lickers, Meg and Gabby Briggs, uh, plus other speakers, First Nations Frontline Action, um, and they have been involved in the Turtle Island. To, they've been, let's have a look, let me read this again. First Nations Frontline Action that they have been involved in from Turtle Island to Melbourne. So if you're interested, it's on the 7th of August, which is tomorrow, at 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., 247 Flinders Lane, uh, Melbourne. And another event on the same day is Stand Against Racism, 7th of August at 7 p.m. It's a fantastic night of entertainment. It's proudly brought to you by Afro Down Under and Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Center, propelled by the common initiative that we stand together against racism and all forms of discrimination. 7 p.m. till midnight, it's um, Paul Paul Bar and Kitchen, it's 267 Little Collins Street, and the cost is $25. It's at 7 p.m. And another, another ongoing battle against Hazelwood. Monday, 8th of August, we have NG France, uh, Mitsui uh, Japan, our owners of Australia's dirtiest power station, uh, Hazelwood. It's one of Australia's biggest contribution to climate change. And that's happening on the 8th of August, 8 p.m., it's at 120 Collins Street. So I'm going to put, out, put on some announcements and get um, Kevin Healy on the line. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick, 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food, childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. Keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. 
or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. And we have Kevin Haley online, who's our regular satire contributor in the front page. Good morning, Kevin. Morning, Lali. I was just thinking about that interview about the Olympics, and I thought how lucky we were years ago. Whether we had a coalition called Bread Not Circuses and fought the campaign when Melbourne was bidding for the games, and we stopped it, <laughs> which, was, which was wonderful. Well, obviously Brazil couldn't do it. <laughs> All yours, Kevin. Okay, a weak solidarity, Becky team listener. When the government continued training for the Olympic diving, executing a perfect naught for a triple backflip with piking it bellywhack over the institutional abuse of Terra Nullius children, a triple backflip completed with a spectacular lack of grace and composure, seeing big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull's Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissioner appointment unappoint himself due to possibly perceived conflicts of interest like he had overseen much of the problem and slotted several of the commission subjects so what seemed a great idea for about two and a half minutes give or take to ensure he didn't need to do anything about the issue while looking like he was doing something about the issue landed belly first and a new her honour had to be found and the victims were finally represented by Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder leading to the Solidarity of the Week Award to Malcolm's Terra Nullius advisor, Downa Warren Mundanamin, who regretted the resignation, saying that Terra Nullius, direct quote, no embellishment, bullying mob out there are not going to be happy unless they get their way. I question whether Indigenous groups will be happy with any appointment. Well, Downer Warren, former Socialist Party National President, now caring business class party Terra Nullius advisor, all things to all white men, we can guarantee you one appointment they're not happy with, or with which, but you know. Given the best way to prevent kids being abused in prison is to make sure they don't land there, address the issues that send them there, I'm looking for that not insignificant point in the terms of reference drawn up by our esteemed Attorney General, giant legal mind George Brandy's brain. No, not there, must be here, it's got to be here somewhere, look I'll find it eventually, but top marks to George for politico-legal doublespeak, telling us, and this was before the triple backflip bellywhack, he had talked to Mick Gooder about the issue, and well he had, he had returned a call from Mick Gooder saying he was returning the call, so technically he talked to him, politico-legal doublespeak. He has adopted similar doublespeak for an issue I suspect will see the proverbial hitting the fan when Parliament gets round to sitting again involving George issuing a directive that all inquiries to the Solicitor General, an an eminent silk, have to go through him, George. Again, he told Parliament he had consulted the Solicitor General about undermining his authority, but the Solicitor General has a diametrically opposite version of the same events, or George's definition of consult, with suggestions poor George may have misled Parliament. Watch this space on that one. 
And while the Minister for White Terra Nullius Paternalism, Nigel Skull on Empty, explained again he had wined and dined in luxury rather than watch the revelations because what happened to Terra Nullius kids hadn't piqued his interest, it did plenty to prick his reputation, although not sure why the word prick sprang to mind. And as the government was dragged gasping for air from the diving pool, it announced it would concentrate on the rowing, highlighted by tossing former team captain Little Kebby Rod for the workers overboard into the stop, stop, language warning. If you're sensitive, if dear little children are present, perhaps leave the room now. Overboard into the turd-ridden pollution, which kind of sums them all up. And although their motive was simply small-minded petty politics, we have to concede they've done the UN of the US of the UN of the world a big favour, bringing us to an article in Tuesday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review that a majority of Cabinet wanted to support Little Kevy, but were overruled by Malcolm and his hayseed and sheepshit sidekick Barnacle, that poor minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, had been kept in the dark about Malcolm telling little Kebby to back off. Anyway, the point is it was obviously a leak from Cabinet. And we know governments are in deep, deep when Cabinet starts springing more leaks than a kitchen colander. Kitchen Cabinet maybe, but this one's set some sort of record, starting to leak before the final votes had even been counted. Happy three years or however long it takes, Malcolm. With that in mind, Malcolm moved quickly to stanch an economic guru scuttle them more lash sons already solid stand about after those pillars of corporate altruism, the banks, failed to pass on the latest interest rate cut, which in fairness, the non-cut, as some long-haired commie lots have been a touch critical of the banks, in fairness, represents consistency. Surely no one seriously expects them to pass them on. Anyway, scuttle them got tough. Look, don't think I'm interfering in your business. I, I would really, really, really appreciate it if you could pass on the cuts. It, it would really, really, really help the government. Uh, but, of course, if you can't pass them on, we'll understand. Oh, and if you need a handout or two, just ask. After some critics suggested Scuttledev's response left a little to be desired, wasn't quite as tough as it might have been, with almost as many leaks and holes as Cabinet, Malcolm stepped in. I would, um, I would really, really, really appreciate it if you could pass on the cuts. He sounded assertive, or as assertive as he could muster, because sounding assertive talking to close friends and great corporate citizens like the banks is not like spitting assertion at evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers whose greed and irresponsibility make him really, really, really angry. No, get stuffed, the banks yelled back. Okay, okay, I understand. Malcolm knew he'd done his best, but then he got really tough, knowing a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the banks was not on, because the banks had told him it was not on. But he had them shaking at the knees with, We will call you in one day every year for a little chat over tea and biscuits and ask you lots of questions. At that, the banks gave him the finger, which must have meant they agreed with this terrifying threat. On not passing on the rate cut, the banks made some noises which sounded like not passing on the cuts to their customers was for the good of their customers, and I just wish they'd elaborated a little bit, although we've got no cause to doubt them. Then again, in the logic run riot department, 
well, for the that appalling Hoodson party, it does represent logic. This new senator says climate change is a world banker's UN of conspiracy. Smash the bank conspirators. Uh, so obviously you'll support a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the banks. Certainly not. Well, as I said, for that lot, that is logic. What an extreme conspiratorial hallucination by the banks and the UN of to create the impression that all this extreme weather and climate change are happening. The conspiracy knows no bounds. Knowing no boundaries, Zion has complained vainly to a biased, anti-Zion, disinterested world over the elected government of Gaza holding a Zion citizen without trial or access to a lawyer and presumably continually tortured for months over allegations he provided funds to Zion and its arms manufacturers and suppliers like the US of the UN of the US of the world to supply the massive Zion-trained killer terror machine which terrorizes and punishes Gaza relentlessly. No, seriously, Zion claims this charity bloke channeled $66 million to Hamas, the legal government of Gaza, although the usual suspects don't recognize it because the people got democracy wrong. Yet the charity says its annual spending in Gaza is about $4 million. We've found the Messiah feeding the masses with a couple of loaves and a fish or two. Instead of locking him up for life, which is what Zion will do, the whole business world should ask how he turned $4 million into 66 mil without anyone noticing it. It's a miracle. Then again, maybe he was just doing his job too well, for I have worked not wisely but too well, showing Gaza's imprisoned citizens to live a remotely normal life without the daily terror from the occupying trained killers. The understatement of the week award, and despite the huge field and no contest in the end, to the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country National Audit Office assessing the proposed Hinkley Point nuclear power plant scheduled to open in about 10 years if it gets off the ground, so to speak. The first new one in about 20 years, financed by French company EDF and 33% by the Chinese state nuclear body, whatever it's called. The audit office estimating the plant would require 30 billion pounds, real figure, 30 billion pounds government subsidies and that the public purse could be liable for disposing or more likely not disposing of spent fuel and the public purse would have to meet any accident claims. Not that the nuclear industry is accident prone of course but the award, 32 billion pounds, pay for spent fuel and accidents and then renewable may be a cheaper option. The Audit Office concludes, National Audit Office, your understatement of the week award is on its way. Finally, as Vic Roads everywhere chopped down a century-old tree using the, sorry, the, the constabulary as usual to remove caring protesters, because chopping down the tree is the law, and Vic Roads said, we would not remove the tree if there was an acceptable alternative option. And I reckon we could probably think of an acceptable alternative option. But it reminds me of that true story, a US of tourist in a plane climbing over a German city above a centuries-old cathedral next to a freeway commenting, how stupid, why would you build a cathedral right next to a motorway? <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you very much for that. That's okay. <laughs> And uh, we are. Sorry, that. Yeah, we're 
Uh, yeah, we're Solidarity Breakfast, and I'm John and uh, Zolita, and it's about eight thirty-four, and yes. uh, we've got uh, another interesting interview coming up. Yes, on Italian banks, and let's get Humphrey McQueen, who's a um, political commentator, very well known, um, and an author too. Uh, oh, are we there? Yes, morning, Humphrey. Oh, okay. Good morning, Wally, and good morning, John. <laughs> morning. <laughs> There's a few lines flashing, so it's a bit confusing there. Oh, <laughs> and the other right, people I'm right. making phone oh, calls. Right. Okay. Well, as you say, we're going to have a look at the Italian banks, not just for their for themselves, uh, although there's a lot of very interesting things happening in Italy about them, but for what they tell us about, well, um, perhaps about the whole banking sector in the world, about the state of the European Union. Um, we could look, of course. I mean, you know, there are plenty of other banking systems that are in trouble as well. Like in Australia. Uh, <laughs> well, the Australia. Well, actually, <laughs> the, the, we're fronting up to the much, Parliament. We're much stronger here than anywhere else. Yeah. Much stronger. And that's why uh, they're fronting up to the Parliament, um, Humphrey. Well, you know, I mean, well. The whole question of what we need to do about the Australian banks is something that we probably should take up in a whole other program. I know. Uh, <laughs> Sorry to uh, throw the Spanish no, no, that's okay. no, you know, so, you know, you could look at the Indian banks, the Japanese, or, you know, and the big, you know, granddaddy of all disasters waiting to happen, which we've spoken about before, which is the Chinese banks. That's right. But let's look at the Italian ones. Now, um, it tells us something about where capitalism and the European Union ahead of as well. Now, in April, which is, what, six months ago, something like that? No, five months ago, something. Anyway, I just, you know, if we quote myself back uh, to you, I said, to the, um, at the end of a program, I said, if you just want one number to track, keep your eye on the European banking stocks, in particular, the Italian banks. Several of them have been trading while insolvent. Now, a couple of months later, throughout June and July, the financial press couldn't take their eyes off the Italian banks. Indeed, the uh, CEO of the biggest uh, uh, French bank uh, was going around saying that Italy could spur a bank crisis right across the whole of the European Union. And that, of course, means the rest of the world. And yes. perhaps, although a lot of people don't seem to think so, includes Australia. Yes. You know, that if it goes there, then it's us too. So he was calling for taxpayers' funds to be used to shore up the Italian banks again. Mm. And he said it should, the intervention, that what they needed to do should happen immediately, as swift as possible it had to be. So that was the state of crisis that he thought was coming out of the Italian banks. So what's the problem there? Well, you can tell us. About banks. <laughs> we should have a few numbers. <laughs> yes. The Italian banks have about 500 billion Australian in bad debts. Mm. Um, their national debt for the whole of the country is 135% right. of the gross domestic product. Now, that is very high. Um, it's not the highest in the world, but it's certainly well above um, the average for the European Union. Italy is also, and it's not alone in this, in the grip of the longest recession since the end of the Second World War. And that means that lots of businesses and families can't pay their bills back to the banks. Um, the, la the country's largest 
um, well, lending bank has lost more than 60% of its share value in the course of 2016. My goodness. Now, that's the broad scenario you know, as to what the state of the Italian um, economy and society and the political system is that we'll get round to. Now, in April, I wound up uh, the suggestion then by saying that Italy probably wasn't going to be the place to go bust because the authorities were paying attention to it and that the danger was always that it would happen somewhere where people least expected it. Well, I was half right, but I was also half wrong. The European Union and the commissioners and the central bank have indeed been paying attention to the Italian banks. Where I was wrong was to assume that attention yes. meant effective action to remedy the situation. Now, what needs to happen, and everyone's agreed on this, is that the Italian banks have to be recapitalized. There has to be more capital in there to secure them into the future. Now, the whole of the, of the government and the European banking system means that there won't be a, uh, a kind of... Uh, run on the banks, the, the, the immediate liquidity, that is, I mean, if people turn up saying, I want my money back, I want to withdraw all my money, then that money will be made available by the banking authorities. That's not the problem. The problem is that they are undercapitalised, that they need to get the amount of real capital that they're holding uh, up and that's the big problem as to where that money's going to come from who's going to put it up now where I was also wrong was that I forgot how competitive the capitalist system has to be that the capitals fight with each other and they do that through the nation market states that uh, they have to organise the interests of the particular capitals that are based in their nation market state areas so that the single currency for the whole of Europe gives German exporters a huge advantage over the rest of the Eurozone uh, the Euro has become the stick to beat the weaker economies and the partners in the European Union into submission politically and Greece is the outstanding That's example right. of that disaster mm. so that what suits German capital doesn't suit Greek capital or Italian capital, or vice versa. So what would be good for the Italian banking system isn't necessarily good for the German banking system. Now, least of all <coughs> is any of this good for working people in any of these places. Uh, Humphrey, can I just ask you a quick question there? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> you just mentioned the the competitive nature of capitalism and yeah. you just talked about the different countries who are banded together in the EU that is rather contradictory when those nations bankers um, are competing against each other they still have to work together well indeed but I mean this is the very nature of the contradiction within the capitalist system that they do have to work together I mean when they form cartels as they do all the time problem is they're still they don't trust each other within the cartels. They're still struggling to survive within there. That as the whole monopolization of capitalism has proceeded in the last 150 years, mm. so has the intensity of the competition between mm. those huge um, um, 
oligarchies between those huge uh, corporations that come out of it. So that while they have to get together to do certain things, they share certain interests, they still have their particular interests that they have to pursue within there. And that's what's happening now in the European Union. Um, we can see it, you know, what was of interest to the British banking system is clearly divided yes. uh, over whether they should stay mm. in or whether they should um, mm. get themselves out Absolutely, yeah. of the European Union. Mm. So there's, no, there, there's never a simple... Never a simple solution mm. to them, nor, as I was saying, you know, is any of this simple for the working people in any of these countries. That's right. What mm. we're seeing is the European Union at the moment forcing uh, labour market and what I call deforms onto the French working class. Mm. And who's doing it for them? The Socialist Administration. Of course. And so you might ask yourself, is it any surprise that people then vote for Le Pen's National Front. Exactly, and hence Pauline Hanson. That they're being screwed by the people who are supposed to represent them. Yes. Who are mainly, I must say, like Strauss-Kahn, global bankers. You mm. just look at them and you think, do they represent me? No. Mm. Anyway, on we go from there back <laughs> to the Italians. Now, one of the most vulnerable Italian banks is based in Siena. It's about the third biggest bank. They did a virtual world stress test on uh, quite a number of the banks, it got wiped out. So that if there was a crisis of any kind in the world economy, this third biggest bank would certainly go down. So why not stump up some of the taxes to bail out the bank in uh, Siena? Well, on the 1st of January, the European Union replace the bail-out rule with a bail-in rule. Now, what this means is that in the past, taxpayers bailed out a bank that was failing. Now, with the bail-in rule, the shareholders and the depositors are supposed to put up the extra capital. Now, we'll come to whether that's a good idea or not in a, just a couple of minutes. But the fact that this is a binding rule doesn't mean to say that it's actually come into effect. And binding, it turns out, means different things for different countries within the European Union. Because the German banks have been enforcing what we could call a triple standard. Screw the Greeks to get back the money that Frankfurt uh, passed over to the Greek oligarchs um, before 2008. The Greek workers have to repay every every euro to the German banks and with compound interest, as we're seeing. And now the Italians aren't allowed even to bend the rules by bailing out a couple of its banks. Hmm. Meanwhile, however, Spain is allowed to run a budget deficit which violates the euro arrangements. One of the biggest banks... Um, um, in Spain, has the worst, uh, you know, um, financial situation. I mean, it is the most vulnerable. Um, we know, if you leave aside a couple of the big German banks out of that, so why does Spain get special treatment? Well, because the Berlin-Frankfurt alliance needed to get the Conservative government in Spain re-elected on That's the 26th right. of June. Yeah, Podemos is on the march. Yep. So they didn't 
want to really throw them, you know, um, throw their own allies there. Um, into a crisis or something. Well, yeah. into, the, into a political crisis, as mm. you say. Mm. So this is how the game is being played. You know, there are rules, but they aren't being equally applied because it's not in the equal interest of the Frankfurt Financial Centre mm. to have them operating equally everywhere. That's the relationship between capital and politics, isn't it? It's very clear in that situation. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Merkel's <laughs> just the creature of the Frankfurt bankers. Yes. So, but Frankfurt's also worried about setting a precedent if you allowed the Italians to do something, because if you bent the rules, Portugal would certainly immediately do the same. Yes. And then you'd have the question, who would follow? Mm. How many more exits might there be, either in part or in, uh, or completely? Mm. So, but there's another storm cloud, a, a political one. In October, the Italians are going to vote in a referendum to reduce the powers of the Senate. The PM has threatened to resign if it is rejected. So Italy faces not just yet another parliamentary crisis, which, you know, they happen you know, at least once a year, but a real <laughs> general crisis. That is a parliamentary, a political, economic, social and constitutional crisis. We see some of the signs of this, in the election of the five-star candidates in the major cities so that they're very worried. The people who are supposed to be running Italy and Europe and the world are very worried about this political upsurge. Now, at home, the Germans have a problem as well. It's more complicated than just saving the big German banks. Um, the last six years have hit the middle-income earners there. Because fewer Germans own their own homes than, than in countries like Australia. The whole different housing arrangement there. What the Germans do, if you've got any money, is to save it. And that works very nicely when interest rates are about, you know, 5 6% or something. Because you can earn some money out of it. But when interest rates are about zero, the savers have been losing money. That's right. So that so that the average German middle class, we can make that phrase, have appear to have lost $3,000 because of the falling interest rates since 2010. Mm. And that has produced a lot of anger inside Merkel's own supporters, um, the kind of people who have these savings. But that's not the end of the worry. Most of these savings are with 500 small local banks. And they can't make any money mm. if interest rates, if they can't charge anything. Uh, and they can't afford to lend to the small and medium um, operators around them. So that you're getting a, a clogging up of how that part of the German financial system operates. Now, I don't think it's going to collapse. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. But the political costs are already been seen in how the German population, uh, that sort of solid German middle class, is beginning to respond to these things. Um, now, these 500 German savings institutes, a lot of the money comes from trade unions, 
small local firms, families, you know, the kind of thing that we call here, you know, we'd say the Bendigo Bank or the... Uh, ME Bank. Uh, ME Bank, perfectly, yeah. yep, mm. yeah. So that's the, I mean, that's the opposite end of the banking system, say, to um, the uh, Deutsche Bank, which is, you know, kind of largest, but also pretty well close to bankruptcy itself. It, it doesn't seem to be able to make a profit. So what does this mean for the future of the whole of the European Union? Now, here I want to quote the recently retired head of the largest research institute in Germany. His name is Wolfgang Streck, and he's an old-style left-wing social democrat. There aren't many of them left. No. But, um, <laughs> here he is. But, so this is what he wrote. Europe is falling apart. Destroyed by its most devoted fans, the Germans. In the summer of 2015, Angela Merkel started a new game aimed at diverting attention from the economic and political disaster that monetary union had become. So part of this, you know, this vicious circle that's been going on is the effect of the bail-in rule. Because what's now happening is that the threat that if you're a depositor or an investor in a bank that's failing, the authorities are going to take some of your money in order to prop up the bank. So what's happening is investors mm. and depositors are taking their money out mm. of the dodgy banks. And that, of course, makes their mm. financial, their capital situation more vulnerable. Mm. So, you know, they've got to find a, a kind of way around that. Now, I think that the, that the coming uh, eruption in the financial sector is still more likely to happen at somewhere that no one's paying attention to. Because the system is pretty much like a sort of, well, waterbed. If you take the pressure off one corner, the pressure doesn't go away, it just shifts to the opposite corner. That's right, it pops up somewhere else. Yeah. So we've also got to remember, though, and this from, you know, just from our point of view, I think is you know, very important with all the discussion about how evil the banks are, that the, the root problem is not with the banks per se. The root problem's the nature of the capitalist system. That's right. Bank profits are just the cut that bankers get out of the surplus value that's added in the productive sectors of a capitalist economy. Mm. It's, I mean, what they get as interest payments is just a slice out of the exploitation of the whole of the working class. But you can't have capitalism without some kind of uh, banking system. And the reason for that is that right from the beginning, capitalism has needed some form of a uh, credit regime. If everyone, I've said this before on the program, if everyone had to pay their bills on the knocker, yeah, when you bought something, the moment you said, yes, I'll buy that, if everybody, the big corporations, I'm not talking about you know, people like us as well, but the, if everyone had to pay immediately, the system never would have got off the ground. <laughs> it's only by being able to delay the payment 30 days, 60 days, or in the beginning, you know, in the 18th century, nine months, 12 months, uh, uh, 
that credit regime has been absolutely essential to the existence and the survival of the capitalist system. And what was going to go wrong in 2008 was that the banks were going to stop lending to each other. And if that happened, they couldn't lend to the corporations and then the whole system would have really uh, seized up. And, you know, so we need to think about, you know, these things. And one of the ways to do so, I think, is to go back and see what Marx says in Das Kapital about it. And next October, well, you know, next year is the 150th anniversary. Yes. So it's a good opportunity, and we might think about this for 3CR. Yes. Doing a regular series leading up to the, uh, the 150th anniversary. Mm. But Sounds next good. time, next time we won't do that. Uh, <laughs> but what we do next time is to go back to our friends at the Bank of International Settlements. We looked at them in July. We saw what the thrust of the report was, that the ways in which governments have been trying to prop the system up have, in fact, made the problems even worse. Um, and they talked about a doom loop. And we just mentioned it last time, but I think we need to look more closely at what they were saying because they're the central banks of the central bankers and they are very worried that none of them really know what to do. Yes, a very doomful future. Thanks, Humphrey. However, <laughs> I'll say one final thing. Yes. Keep smiling. <laughs> we will we'll laugh. What else can we do? We've been told over and over, capitalism depends on confidence. We can't <laughs> confidence. Who's and confidence? Mark pointed out that the what confidence in capitalism means is that the capitalists have to be confident that they can go on screwing the rest of us. That's right. Okay. Good morning, Humphrey. Thank you. Go be with you. Bye-bye. That was Humphrey McQueen, a freelance writer and um, political commentator and economic commentator too. It's brilliant. Talking about starting with the Italian banks and ending up with the uh, global <laughs> world crisis. He always does that. <laughs> which is, he, it's the way he explains it. It's fantastic. Now, I want to make a really quick announcement. Um, there is a interesting um, book launch or a pamphlet launch on the 9th of August this Tuesday at um, the Rusin Centre. 407 Sponson Street on the fifth floor. The speakers are Eugenia Flynn, who's an Aboriginal writer, commentator and arts work um, expert, and John Tully, who's a professor at, at um, the Victoria University, and Hope Mutambu, who's a presenter at 3CR. So it's based on, um, no, it is to launch a magazine on racism and what it is explained and how can we tackle it. At least we're trying to start the discussions. Okay, that's on the 9th. Okay, so we are at the end of the program, and we need to leave the studio before we get chased out. And um, we need to thank um, Tenchua for being available for the interview. And, and George, um, I apologize for the name, Kazniki, Kaznik. Talking about the uh, Olympics. Sorry, George, about the Olympics. Yes, and Kevin Healy, of course, our regular um, citrist. And Humphrey Humphrey McQueen for his analysis of the banking industry in the European Union. Let's leave. We're talking about uh, money. I thought we'd leave with Mel Blank, and this is a track just called Money. Yes, and we will be back in a fortnight.